my name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills still. Um, a, a couple of y'all asked me if I'm still preaching around this place because I've missed two of the last three Sundays with weddings and graduations, but um, it's really good to be back and get settled into a summer rhythm with you guys. And uh, at the same time, I, I thank Taylor again for three weeks ago and Donnie for last Sunday filling in so, so aptly for me. This morning, I want to talk to you even more about demons. And that's how I uh, started the sermon two weeks ago. If you weren't here, we started part one of, a, of just a two-part mini-series on Jesus versus demons that we'll wrap up today uh, within our overarching series rooted through the gospel of Mark this year. And uh, because so many of us said that we had never actually heard a whole sermon in church devoted to the subject of demons before, um, I want to try and swing the pendulum back in the other direction this morning and preach my second whole sermon on the topic. And so we're going to pick up where we left off from two weeks ago. Uh, but again, if you, if you weren't here, um, I want to first begin with a quick recap to catch us all up to speed. So we started two weeks ago, part one was six points, six things that we, we need to know um, as the church about Demons and demons are all over the pages of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, really all throughout the Bible as well. So, um, we this is an important stuff for us to understand. Um, and we're going to add another six points to this recap this morning. So, start with the recap for starters, demons are real. Uh, that was point number one from two weeks ago. Scripture clearly attests to these powers and principalities, these spiritual forces of evil, cosmic powers of darkness over this present age that are not all ultimately reducible to just naturalistic explanations. So we saw that attempts to demythologize the Bible are at best fruitless and at worst heretical because we serve an inherently supernatural God who tells us that our battle too is, is also not against flesh and blood, but is, is in fact a spiritual battle. Demons are real. Secondly, they are relevant to us, the church. In 21st century America, demons aren't just the stuff of Hollywood horror films and primitive, over-spiritualized peoples. They are here, and just because they use different strategies today, Effective strategies, we might add, of convincing us that we no longer need to be concerned with them, of lulling the church to sleep, of distracting the church itself into irrelevancy that doesn't mean that Satan is irrelevant. In fact, Satan may be more relevant today than he's ever been, even if he is more subtle. Remember that great quote from Greg Morris, the most common path to hell unsettles the least. And so the apostle Peter exhorts us to be alert Stay alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan was roaring in Peter's day when Jesus was still walking the earth, but he's a silent killer these days, and so the church must stay on guard. We must, number three, be ready. We need equipping. We need spiritual equipping to fight a spiritual battle. So Paul urges us to put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so we go to our ultimate source of equipping, to God's word, which is our belt of truth. It is our sword of the spirit. We turn to scripture for answers on how to understand and to combat against the demonic. And even if we restrict our study of scripture to just the gospel of Mark alone, 
we see that there are at least nine different takeaways from at least nine different passages that we can glean this morning. The first, again, still two weeks ago now, the first was in Mark chapter 1. The most important truth, the most core truth that we need to understand about demons is that they submit to Jesus. Demons submit to Jesus. He has ultimate authority over them, over us, over all of creation. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So then it should be no wonder that we read in Mark chapter one that he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Why? Because by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Christ is preeminent. He is God, the fullness of God in him dwelt. And so we examine in Job chapter one and two from the Old Testament, sorry, where God granted Satan limited authority and permission to inflict pain on Job within God's sovereign boundaries for Job's good and for God's glory. We saw, once again, God was the ultimate authority. He holds Satan's leash. He is sovereign. God even works Satan's evil plans together for good for those who love Christ and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. That is the most foundational truth we cling to in this discussion about demons. They submit to Jesus. Number two, second, we saw that casting out demons, exercising them, defeating them was a key part of Jesus's mission. Jesus came not just to preach the kingdom of God, but to actually advance it through his life and his actions, pushing back darkness in this world, reclaiming territory that Satan once had dominion over, setting free the captives that were enslaved to Satan's rule. That is why Jesus came, Luke 4, 18. The worst oppression in this world is not of this world. It's not physical oppression, human trafficking, sex slavery. As awful as these things are, they are manifestations of a much deeper, more eternal problem, the enslavement of the human heart to sin. The oppression of people's souls by Satan. That is the most fatal expression of oppression. It's spiritual. And so we pray And we ask the Lord to give us spiritual eyes to see people the way that he sees them, especially in our context, especially in West County, St. Louis, to see people not as comfortable, mostly have it all together, but as enslaved in spiritual bondage, spiritually impoverished, eternally destitute before a holy, perfect God if they do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and liberator. So we proclaim Christ crucified because evangelism, we saw, is our spiritual warfare. And finally, number three, two weeks ago we noted from Mark chapter three that demons are excellent theologians. They know all the right doctrine about Jesus. They just don't have faith in him. They don't trust him. They don't surrender to him. They don't confess him as Lord, Romans 10, 9. And so I warned us against thinking that our good theology will save us. It is Jesus and our personal relationship with him that alone can save us, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So to those six points from two weeks ago, we're going to add six more this morning. Everybody ready? Again, 
Might be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. We'll go fast through these, but text, text your questions, take notes, and we'll discuss more um, this week as the week goes on. Number four, demons are powerful. Look with me at Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 27. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, there's lots of insights we could draw out from this passage, like the main point that Jesus isn't possessed by Satan, but I hope that we can all kind of agree on that, take that for granted here. But one of the major implications of this passage is that Satan is actually powerful. I mean, the idea that that Jesus's miracles could have even possibly been attributable to Satan's power, the idea that Jesus himself acknowledges that Satan still has a kingdom, that Satan is still alive and well in this world for now, and then Jesus alludes to Satan as, quote, the strong man. In all of these ways, Satan's power is actually confirmed here in Mark chapter 3. And these scribes of all people should be familiar with Satan's power because we hear in John chapter 8, 41 through 44, they were operating directly under the influence of it. Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees children of their father, the devil. And that is perhaps the scariest thing of all for us to note this morning about demons. Not only is there real, supernatural, dangerous power in our world, but it's actually available to us. The same, in the same way that a person can be filled with the Holy Spirit, so too a person can be filled with unclean spirits even today, and that power is undeniable. I could give us examples from Scripture, Exodus 7, 22, 1 Samuel 28, Acts 19, 16. I could give you stories from lived experience today, I mean, real stories of undeniable power that the only explanation could be these otherworldly forces. But without distracting us from the main point here, we just need to see that there is real power in this stuff and there are real doorways into that power that God himself has, has outlined and explicitly warns us against, especially in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. Divination, fortune-telling, omen, interpreting, sorcery, a charmer, a medium, necromancer, one who inquires of the dead. And we could add to that list all sorts of other dark practices that have developed in the last 3,500 years since then of human fallenness and brokenness continuing, seances, PSI, ESP, consulting psychics, spellcasting, Ouija boards, astrology, horoscopes, the list goes on and on and on. And God says, don't go near it. My people don't, don't go near any of that. Christians don't dabble with that junk. Not because there isn't power in it, but because there is. But it's not power from the Lord. So we don't mess with it. And yet, even here in this passage that implies how powerful demons and Satan can be, even here Jesus reminds us in verse 27, I'm about to bind the strong man, Satan, to disarm him. And we hear in Colossians 1.13, 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's good news. That's the good news. God has transferred us from that kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. I had a congregant approach me after the sermon two weeks ago and tell me that she used to be caught up in all these sorts of dark practices and had to actually be delivered from evil spirits. Friends, this is not an African problem. This is here. It's real. And the church needs to wake up. Number five, we turn to Mark chapter five, verses one through 20. It's a long passage, so buckle in with me for a second. This is actually the longest passage about demons in all of scripture. Mark five, one through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped off the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain free. He had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him into the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demons begged him, saying, send us into the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and the country. The people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. He was getting into the boat, and the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now, there's so much there. This is actually, again, longest story about demons, but let's just pull out two simple principles. Number one, demons are enslaving. They are about spiritual oppression and keeping God's, not God's people, but just people in bondage. They can't touch God's people, but they want to enslave us. And they are also personal, by the way. They aren't these abstract, nebulous beings out there in the ether. They have names. Legion, Satan, Beelzebub, Belial. And today we have names for our demons as well. The things that enslave us. We talk about addiction in these terms, right? The demon of alcoholism, of drug addiction, pornography addiction, screen addiction, smartphone addiction. There's so many parallels here between the enslavements that we face of addiction and how Mark describes the garrison demoniac here. He says, immediately as Jesus stepped off the boat, the man came out to him to meet him. 
Most addicts want help. As much as they feel the need to keep using deep down, they want to be free. We hear of this man that he lived among the tombs. We know that addiction feeds off of isolation. Healing and recovery are found only in community with others. And so what does Jesus do for the man? In verse 19, he sends him back home. He restores him to community. We hear that no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue this man. If that is not a perfect description for the power of addiction, it's enslavement. And it's bigger than your power or my power to overcome it in our own strength. And I hope that if you're sitting here right now listening, you're not tuning me out just because you've never been checked into a 12-step program. Because I'm personally of the conviction that we all struggle with addictions. We, all, we are all battling addiction to something. Materialism, your stuff, do you own it or does it own you? Your addiction to work, success, status, to family, maybe it's a relationship, to yourself, your comfort. Maybe you need things to be easy for you. Control, you love when things go according to your plan. You need things to go according to your plan. We are all addicted to something. And friends, in your own power, you are powerless over that sin struggle. As the saying goes, we all have our demons. I don't know what yours are. I know what mine are. But here's what I do know about yours and mine. Jesus has power to set you free. That is the gospel good news this morning. Do you believe that? Jesus has the power over whatever it is, whatever sin, struggle, whatever addiction, whatever pull has that hold over your life. Jesus has power over it. Do we believe that? Whatever demon you came here this morning wrestling with, Jesus knows about it. He cares about it because he cares about you. And he has the power to overcome it and he wants to do it. He wants to set you free. And maybe he'll do it for you this morning in a single moment of deliverance like he did here in Mark 5. Maybe after the, after the sermon, you'll pray with me. You'll, maybe you'll even come down, pray with an elder. You'll confess. And whatever you walked in that had a grip over your heart, you will leave completely delivered. You'll never even be tempted by it again. Maybe that will happen for you. Or maybe your experience of deliverance will be more like Paul's in 2 Corinthians 12 who said, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And perhaps God will allow that thorn to remain in your flesh as well, purposely, benevolently, to make you more dependent on him, on his power in your weakness, on his grace in your failures. Regardless of what deliverance looks like for you, we need to know that God allows these demons into our lives 
for his glory. That can be hard to understand as believers. But God gets glory from demonstrating his all-surpassing power to cast out demons in an instant. And he also gets glory, sometimes even more glory, from demonstrating his all-sustaining power to allow demons to continue to afflict us in order to prove that his strength is sufficient in our weakness. Either way, God gets the glory. And that's what it's all about. This life is not about our comfort, is it? It's about God getting glory. Amen? Number six, demons also answer to Jesus' followers. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, we hear Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over unclean spirits, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, John Main, uh, Main, one of our missionaries to Japan, is going to come in and guest preach on this specific passage in July, so I don't want to steal his thunder here. I'll just say this on this point. Jesus shares his authority over demons with his followers. So if and when you encounter demons in this world, Christian, you need to know that. There there is a, a power, a confidence that comes not in yourself, but in Christ in that recognition that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside you and it's more potent than the most powerful force of hell in this world. God's spirit raised people from the dead and it lives in you. God's spirit says, leave and demons flee. It lives in you. You don't need to call an exorcist. This is not, you know, Hollywood professional. The exorcist lives in you. if you've been spiritually reborn through number seven, faith. Faith. Demons hate faith. Mark 7, verses 24 through 30. And from there he arose, Jesus, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has already left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, this is another sermon I'm not going to spoil here. I'm going to do a whole series at some point on the 10 toughest texts in the Bible. I think this is one of them because Jesus calls her a dog, basically. So how do we reconcile that with the, the loving Jesus that we picture in the Gospels? Well, the short answer here is Jesus is testing her faith. And she passes with flying colors. So much so that Jesus says, for your faith, for this statement of trust in me, who I am, and your dependence on me for deliverance, you may go your way. The demon has already left your daughter. Jesus doesn't say, if you have enough faith, bad things will never happen to you. He doesn't say, if you are suffering, it must be because you don't have enough faith. 
that the person of faith won't ever experience hardship in this world. That's the prosperity gospel. Jesus came to make me happy, healthy, and wealthy. And friends, that is no gospel at all. That's a demonic perversion of the biblical gospel. All we see here is that demons hate the faith of true believers. They hate it when in spite of suffering, the woman's daughter is already possessed. In spite of suffering, God's people cling to the hope that we have in Christ like this Syrophoenician woman. And sometimes Jesus looks upon that faith and decides to heal us. And sometimes he doesn't. And when he doesn't, faith says, The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For that kind of faith, the Lord does promise to bless us, not with cars and houses and stuff. It's all going to rot and rust anyways. With eternal life, 1 John 2.25, this is the promise that God has made to us, eternal life. I don't know about y'all. I, I want more than cars and houses and stuff. I want that promise. This life is so fleeting. It's so temporary. It is but a dot on the radar screen of eternity. And so we, Christians, are a people who choose to live life for the life to come. In, in, a, in a culture, a society that says, YOLO, live for the moment, carpe diem. We say, we live for the life to come. Randy Alcorn says it this way, live for the line, not the dot. Got a little graphic there. You might be able to squint and see it. That life on on earth, that blip on the radar, that's how long you're here. And I had to put an arrow on the end because eternity goes on forever. I don't have enough PowerPoint slides to cover it. We live for the line. Satan wants to keep us so focused on the stresses and the anxieties of the dot, and not even the big dot. Satan wants us to get so focused on the tiny dots within the dot, whatever your crisis of the day happens to be. The thing that's keeping you up at night right now, it'll be here today, it'll be gone tomorrow, you'll have forgotten about it a year from now, but it feels like the world hangs in the balance. These relatively insignificant worries of our day-to-day lives that so often cause us to lose sight of the forest for the trees, to live for the dot instead of for the line. We've got to stop, slow down, and realize that faith means living life today in light of eternity. Hebrews 11.1. Brothers and sisters, our hope is seated in Christ, with Christ in heaven Our hope is secure, it's eternal, it's unchanging, it's untouchable, amen? Number eight, demons always oppose the will of God. This is in Mark chapter eight, verses 31 to 33. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Satan is, by his very nature, diametrically and diabolically opposed to everything that God is for. Satan's a title. It literally means the adversary. It just means like 
the opposer. Like everything that God is for, Satan's against. He doesn't stand for anything. He just stands against everything that's good that God stands for. And so when Jesus here says the way forward is the cross, even the cross, especially the cross of Jesus, Satan opposes. And when Peter rebukes Jesus for disclosing that, even with the best of intentions, mind you, because we all know what the path to hell is paved with, Peter is not speaking on behalf of God here, but instead he acts as a mouthpiece of Satan himself. And friends, there's a real spiritual war going on here in this world, whether we realize it or not. We are either, we are actively cooperating in it day by day, decision by decision, action by action, thought by thought. We are either promoting the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. There's not really a third option. There is no morally neutral ground. We're either allowing ourselves to be used by God as his instruments for his goodwill and his pleasure and thus advancing his kingdom or we're implicitly and maybe even unconsciously but not inconsequently living in opposition to God's will and thus serving as nothing less than an instrument of Satan. That is, think about that for a second. That should give us pause. Like, I can actually act as an agent for Satan, Satan's will. Sin isn't just sin. Sin isn't just, whoops, I'll try harder next time. Sin is carrying out Satan's will. We're at war. Sin is friendly fire. Setting off a grenade in your own bunker. It is serious. God abhors it. And so we too should hate it. But that recognition alone leaves us feeling guilty and leaves us feeling even more enslaved if we don't temper it with the good news. We always answer. Satan would love to even take that partial truth of how guilty we are, how condemned we should feel, and, and, and get us focused on that and not let us turn the corner and see the good news that we're more sinful than we ever dare imagine, but we're also more loved than we ever dared hope for. We are more loved in Christ. We are not left to fight this battle on our own because we have an intercessor who sits at the right hand of the Father, a mediator who ever lives and pleads for you and for me. And if you've given your life to him, if you've trusted your life to Christ to be your general in this fight, then you have his very spirit living inside you as well. And it is in his power and in his name then that we, number nine, finally, we pray. Because demons are overcome by prayer. Mark 9, verses 17 through 29, we hear, And someone from the crowd answered Jesus, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. 
It's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Friends, prayer is power. Prayer is the power of God. It is our power. Only God has power over Satan. Again, you cannot, I cannot, in my own flesh, my own strength, win this battle. Satan's way more powerful than we are. But he doesn't come close to God. We cannot, even in our faith, even in our best moments, in our faith, if it's up to us and our faith, we are in trouble. That's why the Father here says, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. He recognizes Jesus. If it's left up to me and my ability to have enough faith to trust you enough, I'm in trouble. Friends, do we realize that even our faith is a gift from God? Do we know that? We hear it is by grace we've been saved through faith, right? Ephesians 2, guess what? Even the saving faith that is required from you to respond to the good news of, of Christ, the gospel, even that faith doesn't come from you. It has to be given to you. Your salvation, my salvation, is totally, absolutely, exclusively, sovereignly a work of God the Father through Christ the Son by the redeeming power of the Holy Spirit the power necessary to ransom us, to purchase us back from the kingdom of hell that we rightfully deserve, as well as the power to keep us, to keep us from stumbling and unwittingly cooperating in that kingdom of hell again, falling back once again into sin, that power comes from God alone. It has to. It, it can't come from in me. It can't come from in you. And so let us pray with passion, with purpose and with wholehearted pursuit of God and his kingdom, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because God, you alone are able to keep me from temptation. You alone are able to, to defeat and conquer the evil one. The temptation, the, the enslavements in my heart. And because Jesus alone is able to deliver us and keep us from stumbling. We pray along with Jude and his letter to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.